When we own our own subjective experience of the text, we can offer that as a way to grant the playwright insight into their impact, which they can then weigh against their intention and close the gap in revision. That is the sweet spot for me. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. On this podcast, I chat with theater makers about the art of new play dramaturgy. What exactly is new play dramaturgy? Our mission here is to demystify the process of creation and collaboration, explore ways to better our field, share tools to diversify and improve the work, and record what we discover. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the managing artistic director. For more about WTP and me, check out workingtitleplaywrights.com. I'd like to start by introducing y'all to our guest today, Rebecca Suella. Thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. It's such an honor to have you. Thank you. It is my honor and pleasure <laughs> to be here. So Rebecca is a writer, director, and dramaturg who has been focused on new play development in Atlanta since 2013. She has worked as a producer with The Seedling Project and The Weird Sisters Theater Project and spent two years as the associate development artist for Working Title Playwrights. She teaches dramatic writing at Georgia State University and is a resident dramaturg with Working Title Playwrights. Up next, she'll be directing a reading of longtime collaborator Daryl Fazio's new work, We Are All Waves on the Same Ocean, as part of the Unexpected Play Festival on April 26th, produced by Theatrical Outfit in partnership with Working Title Playwrights. So Rebecca and I met in 2019 when I approached her to be the very first Working Title Playwrights part-time staff member. And her role as associate development artist was pivotal in establishing the guidelines and structures for WTP programming, among many things. So I want to take a moment and acknowledge your contributions to the work that we do at Working Title and the field of new play dramaturgy. If I could Xerox your brain, I really would. <laughs> Thank you so much. I learned so much in our time. It's really a beautiful community and a great lab for learning. That is the truth. I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. So let's start with some rapid fire definitions of a new play dramaturg. I'll throw one out and you throw one out. We'll do that a few times. Gorgeous. Sounds fun. All right. An unsung hero. A mirror. A translator. The keeper of the spirit of the play. A traveler. The first best audience. <laughs> I love that one. I love that one. That's something I feel like we don't talk about enough, that we are the first audience and that first read is so important, right? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Xeroxing brains, I really try as a dramaturg to really capture my experience as precisely as possible, even if it means misunderstanding things and acknowledging where I got it totally wrong and my own questions get answered a few pages later really just trying to capture and share that first experience and let the playwright in on the the inner process of a first audience is really, really valuable. Love it. I agree. 
So tell us a bit about you and your artistic journey. How did you come to New Play Dramaturgy? Well, I was working as a writer and director, and I actually was working primarily in film. And uh, a close collaborator of mine wrote her first play and asked me to direct. And so that brought me into the theater space where I just fell in love with the process of rehearsing and unpacking and getting to know the play and something about having occupied already so many of the seats in the room, having been a playwright, having been a director. Mm-hmm. Um, dramaturgy was the, the last piece in the mix, but it felt so natural and organic to sort of occupy the space between some of those seats. I love that. I love that. So it's like you tried them all out and you you landed here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I still I still have a quite a hat rack of all the all the hats <laughs> that I wear. But really, um, I think as a dramaturg, that process of like you said, translating between the playwright and the director, between mm. the playwright and the audience, between the play and the playwright, sometimes. Um, it's such a boon to be able to be fluent in the other languages in mm-hmm. order to translate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, being a multi-hyphenate really is such a gift. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I could have been an effective dramaturg had I not taken on other roles first. Mm-hmm. So how do you look at new play dramaturgy like for yourself and how it functions in your life? you know, like beyond your work as well. Um, you know, it's, it's such a big, big field, right? Yeah. So I, I just kind of love to hear how those who identify as new play dramaturgs sort of see it in their life and work. Yeah, what a fascinating question. So I think for me, to be a new play dramaturg is a tremendous gift. There is so much trust in the process of, of handing mm-hmm. this unfinished and yet ready for new eyes, you know, uh, piece, project, to hand that over requires a tremendous amount of trust and vulnerability. And so I really feel very honored when I am able to kind of midwife that process. I take it very seriously and very tenderly. And um, for me, I really, I just want so much to see a world where we are able to share our truths and hold one another's truths. And New Play Dramaturgy is one facet of a way that I can contribute to that in, in the bigger picture of mm. my life as an artist. I love that. I love yeah. that as an answer. So let's talk about feedback. You are a huge component to how we do feedback and your feedback on my moderating and my work has been intrinsic to how how it's developed. And I know you have a lot of really incredible ideas around uh, best approaches to giving and receiving feedback. So when it comes to this absolutely extremely crucial part of our work and development, how do you start and what is your personal approach? I think that it's very important to introduce a pause into feedback. And this is something that actually really the seed came 
planted from from your work and from our work with um, the Monday night development workshops, because we would always take that one minute to just pause before we launched into feedback. And that one minute became uh, a rabbit trail and a, a first step on a path that I've really followed. I think when we take the time to pause, we are able to respond authentically as opposed to react. And we can never stop or fully protect any artist from reactive response. Of course not. But I really foreground the importance of responding rather than reacting. So where I start is to introduce that pause and specifically um, when I'm working with my students, this is a place that I've continued to really develop these ideas. There are certain keywords and giveaways that sort of show us when we're in react mode. And so I take those reactive words off the table for them. And it, it's really, it's a delight to watch them <laughs> sort of catch themselves. But um, much like the Monday night sessions, the keywords that we watch out for when we're giving feedback are good and bad, which you can extrapolate out into value judgments. I take value judgments off the table, especially anything that lands in a place of supposed objectivity. I tell my students, there is no way to really differentiate between whether someone is responding to your work or responding to some inner thing, to their own past. Mm -hmm. Any process of feedback is going to be at best 50-50 about the work and about the person giving the feedback. So I try to guide us toward acknowledging that. And when we make these like good, bad value judgments, there is no, we ignore any sort of criterion for goodness and badness. And we deny the subjectivity of those criteria, you know? So with, with good and bad, I just don't find it helpful at the end of the day. It also creates, when we make value judgments, it creates this separateness between the person giving feedback and the person receiving feedback. This is what leads to that feeling like you're in front of a firing squad. Mm. This is what leads to that feeling like you're on trial somehow. <laughs> um, it really introduces a huge chasm between the artist and the audience mm. that frankly disempowers the, the artist, um, making them feel like the audience holds all the power to mm. determine their goodness or badness at the end of the day. Uh, I've seen a lot of harm done from those sorts of value judgments. Uh, so that is the first thing that is off the table. A little bit better than that is when we talk about what we like and dislike. So we're no longer sitting like on a cloud on high judging the merits of all things creative. But frankly, we still can't do very much with somebody's personal preferences. Mm -hmm. It's not specific enough to actually understand the essence of the response, of what, what flavor 
of like or dislike, right? right? So we take those off the table as well. Um, if we do stay in the world of, of like and dislike and personal preference, it can lend to a lot of people-pleasing mm-hmm. in the creative process, mm-hmm. right? We're chasing likes. And that, I think, is can be a real betrayal of your own creative impulse. Not to mention the um, that it, it can shut off some of the playwrights immediately, and then they don't hear the feedback that's offered that might actually be useful, right? Absolutely, yes. All of this, we're really looking at ways of communicating, ways of giving feedback, that are more likely to be heard. Mm. Anything that comes at the playwright with a, you did this, or even the play does this, both of those set us up for a very human reaction of defending, explaining, justifying. And that's just not possible, right? Like, not only is it unhelpful, but you can't just run after your work every place you've submitted it, every place you've sent it, defending, explaining, and justifying, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really like us to, when we own our own subjective experience of the text, we can offer that as a way to grant the playwright insight into their impact, which they can then weigh against their intention and close the gap in revision. That is the sweet spot for me. In terms of everything we take off the table, this is why, this is what we're trying to fill that in with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the idea that any of us are anything but subjective is, we know this not to be true. Right. And we have to acknowledge this in feedback as well. Um, And I think, too, I want to mention the um, Monday night development workshops are sort of our foundational program with Working Title. Um, And when when you were on staff, we spent quite a bit of time readapting and recreating that program. And what it is, is um, essentially it's three to four scripts in the course of uh, two to four hour, two to three hours, each script is thirteen pages long. Um, each uh, script gets a minute of silence right after the reading by actors of our ensemble, and then we have about fifteen minutes of feedback, which is moderated by a dramaturg and done in a specific style that Rebecca and I developed, which is uh, very much based in this foundational conversation we're having. I think, too, it's important to note the Monday Night Development Workshops are very much a community building program, really trying to connect our artists. So we have introductions and plugs during it. So it becomes a space for people to connect and to see each other as fellow humans and fellow artists. And it's a very diverse group of people. So it becomes a program that needs a lot of structure so that we can manage how the feedback comes through. Um, And so in that, we created a whole set of guidelines together, one of which was avoid the use of like or dislike, which I can say, and I'm sure you had the same experience that people always laugh or they look at you crazy when you say that rule. And I always had to explain, well, it's just not useful to the playwright. You know, it's we're here to go back and work on the script. Absolutely. Yeah. These conversation enders as opposed to conversation starters that there's such a tendency to want to sound clever to want to get that mic drop moment but when the mic is dropped 
usually the mic breaks. Mm. There's not much to come after that. Mm. And we're not interested in ending the discussion. Okay, so for the rules for the Monday nights, we have raise your hand to speak, Mm -hmm. which we do because I find that if you allow people to just pop in, they end up interrupting each other a lot. And then there becomes sort of a discomfort um, for folks with that. Um, And those who are shy or introverted may not be comfortable uh, jumping up or jumping in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard Mm. enough for them to raise their hands. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and also sometimes offering for those folks a little bit longer to come up with maybe raising their hand or giving a moment to those who maybe have not spoken yet, Mm -hmm. which is something I love. But then our second rule is, you know, snap if you agree, which is a consensus rule, right, Mm -hmm. which was in place before we both started, but is beautiful because it really saves a lot of time and efficiency in feedback, right? Absolutely. Yes. That's one that I carry over into the classroom as well. The way I explain it there is that we have so many perspectives here and so much to get through, so (laughs) many scripts. So rather than piggybacking rather than repeating if we can create a quick auditory sense of consensus which snapping does then we are able to prioritize getting a quantity of perspective into the room we make space for disagreement and other ideas Mm -hmm. by showing quickly how agreement is landing Yeah, such a good point. And of course, we also included a rule, speak from I, later on in the process um, to give people a sense that if they didn't agree with somebody else in the audience, there was no need to mention they didn't agree and they could just share their opinion, right? Because then I have had some very just uncomfortable situations where audience members have gotten into arguments or were continuing to go back and forth about something and it just felt very sort of damaging to the process, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no need and really no point for anyone to be right Yeah. in their perception of a text. <laughs> right, Everybody, of a piece of a work of art. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, you're all inherently right. You perceived it. That's what you perceived. It mm. is inarguable. There is no need for argument. Yes. Yes. I think when I had a situation like that, I had to stop the folks in the audience and say, this is really helpful. The playwright now knows that you have completely opposite opinions. We're going to move on because that's really great. And we know it now. Yes, that's perfect. You know, and it it happened to be theater artists. So I was kind of like, I think they can handle that. You know, the idea that we we get you and let's move on uh-huh. um, because we do want to know if you have differing opinions, but there's no need to be like, well, I don't agree with you. <laughs> right. It's right. like, well, no, it's not. Again, it's not about right or wrong. It's about, well, this was my experience. Absolutely. And it's so important um, in a situation like that, where there is a moderator that the moderator not prioritize one opinion, mm. right. When there's that space of disagreement, knowing that you are, in a privileged position in the space, really doing your very best to sit out of any sort of disagreement or argument and not um, weight your response by your space in the room. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things we discovered was that it was really helpful if moderators waited to share any feedback they might have until the end of sections and also to focus any feedback they might have on connecting the dots for the playwrights or potentially determining uh, consensus ideas that would be useful, right, rather than guiding the feedback by their personal opinion at the beginning of that section. Absolutely. Yeah. The role is sort of summarizing and consolidating as opposed to picking and choosing and contributing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, what was it? I think we uh, use the word referee (laughs) in our moderator guide. That sounds about right. (laughs) I like that because it feels um, fun too. Yeah. 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 Um, and so for you, are, what other rules do you like to use? Do you, um, you know, we have in our rules for MNDW, we have be kind, be courteous. Mm-hmm. We have avoid suggestions on how to rewrite the play. Yeah. I also continue to work with that one. Mm-hmm. How do you like to describe that one? All right. So it's <laughs> fun. I get a little sassy with it. <laughs> so I, the, the watch words that I use for that, the, hints that we're stepping into that space are what if or should. So what if means we're going into a brainstorming place. Mm. Should means that, again, we're subtly making a value judgment. There is a right or a wrong way to do it. So we avoid suggested narratives. Our flags for them are what if and should. And it's not off the table completely to use this kind of language. There are given relationships, there are given stages in the process where you absolutely need that, where you are stuck up against a wall and you've got someone that you trust and you are like, what makes sense to you here? You know, you might ask as the playwright, what should happen here? But the space for that is not an open feedback. That to me contributes to a space where Suddenly everybody gets very excited and we're all very creatively brainstorming and the playwright may even be enjoying it, but they get home and they go to implement these suggestions, these ideas, and they're not organic to the person sitting down to do it anymore. And so Mm -hmm. suddenly they feel like they are no longer writing their play or they don't feel like they want to write it at all. They don't know how to serve these ideas that are everybody else's, that are not intrinsic or organic to the thing that they were trying to do. So the way that I lay this out is if you are inspired and so clear as to the what ifs and the shoulds, congratulations. It sounds like you have an idea for a play. Go write it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think too, it's, um, it just, it's kind of like adding a lot of clutter to the playwright brain, right? And asking them to question their intuition or their own personal beliefs about what should happen in their own story, right? Absolutely. And not even asking them to question, which is a valid process. Mm -hmm. It's great to question. It's great to bounce up against things you know, when you're very, very hungry, you're like, what do you want to eat? Somebody's like, I don't know. But if you offer something, suddenly they're quite clear on what they want to eat, right? They don't right. they don't want your emergency granola bar. They want a whole pizza and they knew it. But <laughs> it's great to be asked and invited to question. 
Mm-hmm. But to be told, again, with that sense of rightness and wrongness, mm-hmm. you should do this or that it, this needs this. Mm-hmm. That is more, I think, defeating and deflating. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is in a place to receive that invitation to question, right? So it, it, can, it can be useful, but it can also be harmful. Mm-hmm. I think this kind of turns us a little bit on a corner of, of what's important in receiving feedback as well, having those boundaries mm. in place for yourself, having that clarity of what it is that you are seeking from the feedback process. So many of us can come in with these unacknowledged things that we're seeking, validation, approval, acceptance, mm. mm-hmm. permission to have the opinions that we have, right? And none of those things are really, again, there are places that you can go. There are hopefully collaborators and people that you can turn to in the process and say, this is what I'm needing right now. Here's my new thing. Will you read it and tell me it's great, right? It's very important to have those people in your corner. But an open feedback to come in wanting or needing that can be devastating because you are moving into the space where you might not get it. Mm-hmm. And then what? Mm-hmm. And even if you do get it, the best case scenario is you're just puffed up and feeling great, mm-hmm. which is cool for a day or two, but what are you going to do with the play after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, is that feedback been actually useful to you from a revision standpoint, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of developing praise can be just as much of a conversation ender as a harsh critique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, you know, saying I like it. I mean, when I first started with working title, people would say, Oh my God, I like that. So I love this so much. And then the next piece would come up and nobody would say they loved it so much. And I was like, ouch, we've already got a problem here, right? I think that was one of the other reasons we pulled it out. Yeah, absolutely. Even before my students were in in full feedback mode, we were talking about this very thing. And I was like, I love that you love each other's work. I think it's wonderful if you want to go up privately to that person at the end of class and let them know. But just like you're saying, if we introduce the possibility of praise, then you don't even have to be mean for it to land as a harsh criticism, right? Mm -hmm. Neutral becomes negative. Nothing becomes a pain point if that kind of applause is on the table at all. Right? It's like what's missing will be noted, just like in the play. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just seen that just break people's hearts. Yeah. Just break their hearts. Yeah, it can become, it feels so rejecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's all they focus on and they miss all the feedback. Absolutely. You know, um, I also, I love this idea of talking about the playwright receiving the feedback and um, learning to, you know, take what's useful and to know that, you know, don't go in with validation, wanting validation because very likely you will be disappointed. Um, I also think about, um, like if a play, like all the different stages of a piece, 
and how far along it is and how polished it is, right? right? In our Monday nights, we may have something someone's been working on for five years and then something someone literally wrote three days ago. Yeah. And that's the nature of the program. And for me, that's why it's exciting. But for folks who are not used to hearing work that is very early stage, right, may not understand that this is the beginning and you have to approach the work where it is. Right. And so when we're, when we have three or four pieces in a night, it's just so important to acknowledge that all the phases are different. They're coming from all these different voices. And, um, and for me, like that's really exciting. And if they're really different, it ex- it's exciting. But I think that that is a, um, a tool that we learn to develop. Right. right. I feel like I have moved into understanding that as a dramaturg after many, many years of, of being able to read something and feel like, oh, well, I, I almost can feel how long this has been in development, right? Yeah. Um, and that a lot of our audience members, even if they're theater artists or playwrights, may not realize, you know, that that stage of process being so intrinsic to the experience they're having that night with Absolutely. that play. Absolutely. It's like holding a three-year-old up against a 16-year-old and be like, mm, you're not a very good driver. <laughs> You know, um, it's just not fair looking at looking at where it is and looking at what's next, looking for the next best step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, talking about the mission of the feedback, mm-hmm. it's like the mission is what are our, what are the next best steps to take yeah. for, for this script? I think, too, uh, probably should mention that uh, for working title, we use we kind of work off the Liz Lerman response process, but it's pretty loose. (laughs) And so our three main questions we always ask are, do things resonate? Uh, What resonates for you? Um, What sticks out? What distracts you or sends you down a rabbit hole? And then the final is what questions do you have for the playwright? The playwright won't answer these questions. Am I remembering correctly? Did, were you working with me still when we added the playwright questions to the program? Yes. Yeah, that was a great development. Um, We had some wonderful feedback on that. Do you remember what we decided on that? It was um, some of the playwrights wanted to ask their own questions and we had to decide where we were going to put that. Right, right. And so we decided to put it at the beginning before all of the other questions. Yes. And uh, this was really exciting for me from a, a standpoint of like helping or guiding the playwright into wanting to find something or knowing that there's a mission for them. Absolutely. It it was, I do remember that there are, there's still the trickiness. There's still the trickiness of some of those questions that would come up would be these shadow goals. These like, do you like it? Would you like to hear more? What on earth do you expect from that? Who's going to say no? Like that's rough. If somebody is going to just be like, no, I don't like it. Oh, gosh. And if they do say yes, how can you even, like, how authentically can you really take that? You Mm -hmm. put people in a very awkward position. It's (laughs) like the, you know, does does this make my butt look big? Not a bad thing at all. But, you know, it is that kind of question with, with no right answer. And there's nothing really available there. So mm-hmm. I encourage my students in particular uh, to come with 
revision goals, with draft goals mm. that they have in mind so that they can ask those questions with more precision mm. and guide them in direction of getting feedback along the things that they are actively working on, right? Then if they hear some stuff that is beyond what they're currently working on, they kind of just can put it in their notes in like a little second column, right? That is for maybe a future draft goal, but they don't have to be waylaid by the unexpected. But yes, it's fantastic for the playwrights to be empowered to ask their own questions. I think that is tremendous. And also, they need to take accountability for making sure that those questions are really barking up the right tree. You know, mm -hmm. that they are appropriate for the context of the stage that they are at, the folks that they are asking. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I've also had playwrights ask questions like, um, do you like this character? And I'm like, no, 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 you're just asking for them to say they don't like this character. It's what that feels like, right? So, like, <laughs> being careful to ask a question that's going to actually elicit a negative response by the way the question is asked. So right. I've had to go back and say, maybe maybe we could reframe this question. And you could say, um, do any of the characters resonate more with you? Right. 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 Which character <laughs> welcomes you into the story? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Crafting those questions is so key. It is. It is. It's subtle work, but it really, it does come back to those, those core guidelines, the avoidance of value judgments, the avoidance of vague personal preference, aiming instead for specificity and precision, and the avoidance of, of suggesting shoulds, which is ultimately just a sneaky value judgment. Right. And I love how specific you make that by saying what if and should are the flags. Yeah. So helpful. Yeah. That's something you've developed on your own because we didn't do that. So I think that's great because, I mean, that's part of what we're doing, but it's very clear. So you could say, um, you know, what does it mean to make a suggested narrative? Well, well, what if and should? Yeah. So that's, that's really helpful and really clear. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, like, we also learned that it had to be fun to moderate and you had to enjoy yourself, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and, and hopefully lead the room with positive energy and good vibes and we're here to support the playwright. Um, you know, that's something I think it's helpful. Uh, we have some of our moderators that will say the mission of MNDW is to support the playwright in their next steps for development. Right. right? It's like, we need to say those things. Like we yeah. need to spell it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a space where I really want to hit a place where I honor the sacredness mm -hmm. of this work of this being present at the birthing of a thing without getting precious about it. Mm. There's a difference between sacred and precious. And um, precious doesn't have a lot of room for fun. Doesn't have a lot of room for mistakes. Yeah. Sacred includes all things. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be a little marvelistic. And it feels almost like an honoring of that intuitive process. Absolutely. Right? Rather yeah. than like, oh, we can't do it this way or we can't. It's like what feels, what feels right. Absolutely. And, and that 
you know, honoring yourself and your needs through the process and, and just being in collaboration at a table with other artists, you know, it feel it really does feel sacred when there is a deep connection happening between those people. Yeah. Yeah. A connection and a service. I think mm, maybe that's in part service of, too. Yeah. Part of why that, that yes. emerged for me when you said, you know, it's important to say the mission, right. To, to remember that we're serving something. Mm. Right, as opposed to our own opinions Absolutely. in this space. Yeah. yeah, or proving something. Right. To serve is a lot to more fix something. beautiful than to prove <laughs> yeah. or to fix. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think approaching new play dramaturgy from a service perspective is really the only way to go about it, really. Yeah. Can you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as we decide to serve our own desires or ego, we get a little lost. Absolutely. in what's needed in that process. Absolutely. I always tell dramaturgs that I'm training, I say, just please disassociate yourself from the product and from the final, whatever is whatever happens at the end, because that's the playwrights, you know? And that's the journey. Instead of expecting it to go one way or another or the way you think it should go, loving the journey of seeing where it goes. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a real need to be present. Mm, yeah. to be able to respond to where it is. And it's it's a little paradoxical because you are ultimately trying to get it somewhere, right? But you have to be present with where it is for it to go anywhere. And the attachment mm. to an outcome or a specific expectation gets in the way of presence. Mm. That is such a great point. That is such a great point. I think especially um, when you're still trying to find the play, right? It's like that's that's your process, and that's so important that you you keep that space open for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. Awesome. That actually moves me right into my next question, <laughs> which is what do new play artists need from the American theater? What do you think they need? Mm. And how can we support them better? Well, first and foremost, they need to be asked what they need (laughs) and listened to when they respond. Because what we need is going to be absolutely different depending on the person working, the play. Um, For so long, it's been, it's felt quite dangerous to ask for what you need. Because there's been such a scarcity mentality, there's been such a kind of gatekeeper structure that to feel like you have been chosen, you can get very afraid to fuck it up. Absolutely. And we have this mentality that asking for what I need might make me, quote, difficult, which might make me, quote, fuck it up, which might mean I never get another shot. And... So first and foremost, and almost only, (laughs) I have other opinions, but almost only, to be asked what we need Mm -hmm. to create that energetic space for um, permission to have a need, permission to experiment, to, to take risks, All of that is so important. And then um, 
sharing of space. Space, mm -hmm. I think, is is a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. Space is probably one of the biggest deals. And of course, that space doesn't always need to be physical, but a lot of times it does. And so how do we share space, create space in ways that welcome risk and are less risk averse? Mm. That's pretty critical experimental space. I do. I, I feel that there's a, a trend in that direction. Mm. Um, I have seen significant growth in that area in the years that I've been working. Mm -hmm. Is it perfect? Is it done? Absolutely not. But it's moving. Mm. That's nice. Yeah. And then I would say the need for conceptions of structure that are non-hierarchical. Mm. So much of the prior and existing and, and currently cracking structures are so hierarchical. And um, this can lead to a real like burn it down impulse, right? It can make us want to get anarchic about it and just knock out structure completely. But we need structure because, again, of the tenderness of a new thing being born. We don't want to throw the baby into <laughs> anarchy, but we also want to give it structure that is clear without being vertical, mm -hmm. horizontal structure, you know, where there are parameters there are guidelines, but it's reciprocal. Power is shared. And we have clear expectations, but they're also based in mutual agreements. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is uh, overly idealistic, <laughs> but ideals are what we're talking about here. Yeah. Those are some yeah. of mine mm -hmm. that I would love to see. Shared power, shared space, and horizontal structure that allows everybody the gift of clarity so that they are safe to explore. Mm -hmm. Love it. I think, too, the idea of, of shared space, both in the rooms we build for, for the creative process and also, like, just the place to be in process. Just exactly. some, some theater that will provide space to exactly. artists coming up and when share, I <laughs> right? And, and share their space when it's empty and make it possible for those of us who don't have spaces to do work as well, you know? Yeah. Um, and to see the value that that can bring to the producer that is welcoming in local artists. Absolutely. Yeah. When I say space, I mean it metaphorically and also very literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, so I would love to hear uh, some of the new play references or inspirations you'd like to share with our listeners. Yes. Okay. So I have two resources that have been absolutely crucial to my work in, in each seat in the, the theatrical space and also 
they are not at all theatrical <laughs> resources. <laughs> so the first is the work of Julia Cameron. Uh, she is best known, I think, for The Artist Way, which is, a, I want to say, 13-week sort of create, creative reawakening process. She guides us through journaling, and she has really impacted the way I think about permission to create, permission to unpack and unseat the expectation of starving artists and the the cultural myths around needing to suffer to make something Mm -hmm. of value. Mm -hmm. Um, She really has welcomed me into a worldview where the art can be bubbling out of abundance and not from (laughs) pain. (laughs) Um, So I really, really love her worldview. Her work has been tremendously supportive for me. The Artist Way is one of her processes. Uh, The Listening Path is her most recent book. This is all about creating space to be receptive as well as to be aware of what you're taking in, right? When you actually stop to listen, how is that constant grinding of the train tracks affecting you or whatever it may be? Um, but really opening up the, the receptive side of the artistic mind. It's not just about what you're putting out. How are you aware of what you're taking in? How good at you, how good are you at listening? to the world around you because that directly connects to how good you are at listening to the work that wants to be born from you. Mm. So I adore Julia Cameron and would recommend her to, to any artist and even those who vehemently deny their own creativity. <laughs> she, she can help us all to, to find a way to live more creatively and uh, generously, I think. And the second resource is uh, the work of Marshall Rosenberg in nonviolent communication. This mm-hmm. has been a really big influence on me in terms of the way that we communicate around needs, the way that when we can get down to the needs being expressed rather than the opinions mm-hmm. or the strategies there are a finite amount of human needs and they are profoundly shared. Mm. So if we can begin to come from an awareness of needs, release our strategy and release any mode of, of praise and punish, right? Because as we've discussed, one really creates the other. When we can work with needs and meeting the needs of all without needing to uh, operate from a win-lose dynamic in communication. This is absolutely tremendous. Now, it is tricky. <laughs> I will say plays thrive on the win-lose dynamic. Plays have a lot of violent communication with them, <laughs> of course. That's kind of the essence of what we call conflict, which is what we call drama. But I am so curious to see what uh, what sort of theater could emerge modeling nonviolent communication. 
what kind of what kind of stories would we tell exactly. from that space? Um, and in terms of ways of giving and receiving feedback, it is an absolute game changer. Uh, his perspective is so tremendous. And also in terms of sharing power in the room and acknowledging um, the institutional racism that impacts us, um, all of these modes of toxic hierarchy, nonviolent communication really brings us into shared humanness while mm. allowing for difficult conversations to be neither won nor lost, but to be managed in service of meeting the human needs of all involved. So I would firmly, again, recommend that. And I challenge a playwright to write a, a nonviolent play, <laughs> a truly, truly nonviolent play. I love that challenge. I think it's a fantastic one. I think there's... Um, a lot to be said for questioning the way we build story now and the way we think of conflict and the way we think of, like for me, what I want moment to moment, I may have no clue, right? So the idea of the super objective and what the character wants, for me, I'm like, sometimes I'm not sure if that feels completely on point for me as a human, right? Mm. And uh, if, I, if I as a person don't know what I want in every moment, why would the character so I often challenge that for myself. I right. think it's super useful for an actor, but is it as useful for the story building itself? And can we separate the two potentially and still use them, right? I mean, there's just so much we can consider about breaking apart what we already know and still using it, right? Yeah. And that's because that's been my question too, is can you write a play that's not based on conflict and still write a play, mm. you know, is, is it, or is conflict the wrong word, right? Um, right? Maybe it's about, well, this person has these triggers and this person has these triggers. Let's put them in a room and see what happens when those triggers get, get set off. You know, that's right. still conflict, but it's sort of a different way of approaching it, yeah. um, which is character driven rather than here's a plot point. Let's drop this thing in and see what happens. Um, so I'm always kind of asking that question. How can we break up what we think of? as the way to do it. And I love that you have mentioned this book because I read it twice this winter yes! for the first time. So oh, I love so that you mentioned good. it. It is incredible. It changed my life. I oh. feel so, I completely resonate with everything you have to say about it. I think, and it is one of those foundational works in this kind of communication. I mean, he is well known if you study Absolutely. this work at all, but if you haven't heard of him, you know, most of the people who work in this kind of uh, field today, they know who he is, you know, because this book is so important and it's really not very long. It's quite, it's pretty short. It's quite short. It has big print and yes. it says the same thing a lot of different ways. It's yep. incredibly accessible. It really is. It really is. And I think his take on anger too really blew my mind. Yeah. Um, as a, not an emotion. It's not an emotion. Anger is a signal of a an single. unmet need. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is so resonant. Um, so I love that you brought that up. I honestly feel like, um, actually, Matt Torney said in the interview we did for in episode three, he said, I think the most important tool in a collaboration room or in nude play development is emotional intelligence. Mm. And I think that nonviolent communication teaches that yeah. in a community, like very focused in on the communication aspects of emotional intelligence. Absolutely. 
And so I just, I love you brought that up and I, I hope folks will consider looking into that book because it's it's pretty amazing yeah oh i love that you've been reading it too yes the mind meld yes (laughs) i mean i've been taking in a lot of different kinds of thought leader content you know emergent strategies by adrian marie brown it's one of my favorite books i've read a few times um because i'm constantly thinking about what it means to create a space for people you know, and, and how to build that in a way that is, that is sustainable and healthy and efficient and like connected. Right. Um, and I think it's just, it's very, it has to be deeply intentional. Um, and I think I get a little obsessed with it and I think that's part of why I do what I do. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's such an incredible tool, nonviolent communication for artists to come together and work with one another. Absolutely. We just don't listen enough and we often want to just tell somebody that we have a different idea. Mm-hmm. But you know, those two ideas can exist in one place at the same time. Yeah. Because they do. Because <laughs> they know like, but can they? They already are. <laughs> oh, it's happening. There's nothing to fight. <laughs> right. Love it. Yeah. So I'd love to hear um three playwrights that you'd like to mention that you're you're you want to lift up today okay so I will start with the very first playwright who who drew me into the theater her name is Alexandra Landers she's currently based in Austin and she's doing quite a lot of visual art these days but she opened my whole world to what theater could be we were both at the time filmmakers uh studying at at Florida State University and she wrote her first play and she wanted me to direct it and that is one of the greatest gifts anyone has ever given me that little 10 minute play that she handed me because it opened me into a whole new world um, and a different way of conceiving of the possibility of theater her work is wildly magical and deeply personal and very human and simultaneously raw and incredibly polished it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really a treasure so um, I recommend finding her work where you can um, and producing it if you have the capacity to do so <laughs> um, I also want to uplift Dr. Candy Dugas who was based in Atlanta until quite recently and she's now at Dancing Grounds in New Orleans but, uh, Candy is an incredible artist who is absolutely fearless and brings her, she's also, um, she's a minister uh, in addition to her her creative work. And she brings this tremendous spirituality into the work that just, it thrums with life and soul and meaning. And she's really in there working stuff out um, and challenging us to do the same. Her work always opens my eyes and my heart. I love to work with her. Candy once told me, since you've mentioned her, she said, collectives or organizations or groups or entities, they're always living and dying all at once. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. That's it. That's, That's it. why I love her. That's it. Right there. <laughs> so why your words were never said? So beautiful. And then uh, what a third playwright I'd like to uplift is Nathan Jerpy, 
who is a member of Working Title. That's how we came to work together. And he's the playwright I mentioned a little earlier with the serialized theatrical experiment. We've been in process and developing this together for several years. And the project is called Flay's Anatomy. We are just beginning to open it out into audience stages. So you can keep eyes out for that. But I am blown away by the, again, the courage, the, the chutzpah as well, just to radically reimagine what theater can do uh, to continue writing a work, even when you are deeply unsure of its medium, just to keep going and doing it in different ways. Uh, boldly experimental spirit and uh deeply dedicated to what the work asks of him. So I strongly recommend Nathan Jerpy's work as well. Love Nathan. Such an imaginative artist. Just Absolutely. So just so creative. Yes. It's, it's it's been wonderful to see him bloom into this work with you. I'm so glad that he has your support and that y'all are working together. It is so easy. You know, I read a lot. I read a lot of plays. I read a lot of screenplays. It's pretty special for me to see something and be knocked out. When I say I've never seen anything like this, that's got some weight behind it. It's true. (laughs) I second that. It's true. It's true. I, I love it. I, I'm so excited to see where this work goes with him. Yes, so great. Me too. <laughs> so new play artists you'd like to lift up. Um, could be dramaturgs, could be anybody in the new play field. Yeah, so I've learned quite a lot about dramaturgy, starting with, I'd like to start with Salisa Kalki, who uh, works with Synchronicity Theater now. But when I first moved to Atlanta, Salisa was working at the Alliance Theater, and she was really uplifting new work there. And I got to uh, assist her on several world premieres that they were doing. And the way that she asks questions, the presence that she carries in a room, her absolute commitment to her own tastes and preferences while also acknowledging that those are her own tastes and preferences. Mm -hmm. Um, The phrase play math, (laughs) the the reality of of breaking into the nitty gritty and the, um, the logical, rational side of new play development, Mm -hmm. noting any sort of gaps and consistency, not just, the dreamy feeliness of it, which came quite natural to me, but Salisa's rigor mm-hmm. um, was such a huge inspiration and gift to me. So I, I love what she has done for new plays in Atlanta and beyond. I uh, really appreciate her and her mentorship. Uh, Dr. Angela Far Schiller, who is another resident dramaturg with Working Title, uh, I've had the privilege of both watching her work and working alongside of her and. She is incredibly sensitive. Mm. Her, she is just, and I don't mean sensitive in like a, a precious way. I mm. mean, she is listening with like every fiber of her being. She is feeling into a text mm. and her attunement to the specific 
specific questions and the precision with which she phrases them. Mm-hmm. The questions that seem to, honestly, they, they don't even seem to emerge from her. It's like <laughs> she is a, the, tuning into the questions that the play is asking mm-hmm. and bringing them into the room with uh, incredible clarity. Uh, I have really learned a lot about the art of asking questions mm. from my time in her presence. Mm-hmm. So those are those are two dramaturgical heroes <laughs> that I have. And uh, in a space of just new play artists, someone who really uh, is deeply multi-hyphenate, holds all the seats. I would love to uplift Danny Hurd, whose yes. work. Uh, I have worked with Danny as an actor when I was directing, as a dramaturg when I was directing, as a playwright and serving as their dramaturg and serving as the director of their plays. So we have really cross-pollinated in so many ways and I continue to be absolutely floored by the way that they fold in all of their gifts, all of their niche interests and create something profoundly holistic, really a, a body of work that is inspiring and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would put them in any seat, in any room, confidently. Love it. So I'd love finally to hear your best advice for new play artists, especially playwrights and dramaturgs. Mm. My best advice for new play artists, playwrights, dramaturgs, Trust yourself. Trust yourself enough to be receptive to other people's perspectives, right? That that's not a threat to you. But trust yourself enough as well to know what wants to come through you and to differentiate between what rings true in your bones and what isn't your truth to carry or offer. Mm. Self-trust is is profound. Hmm. Snaps to that. So where can our listeners connect with you and keep up with your work? I am unfortunately a little unpredictable. I'm trying trying to work on my consistency. So now it's out there. I can hold myself accountable. But probably the most reliable place to catch me is on Instagram at Becca uh, B-E-K-A-H-S-U-E-L-L-A-U. It doesn't look like it sounds. <laughs> so I spell it out. But that's probably the most reliable place to find me for now. Awesome. And of course, with my uh, dramaturgy work, they can find me through Working Title if they're interested in yes, collaborating with absolutely. me. Absolutely, yes. And that's through me. So that's that would be emailing me at managing at workingtitleplaywrights.com. Um, so... I am just so pleased that we've had this conversation today. It is such a gift to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly, thank you. My heart is full. It's been a delight. Thank you. I'm your host, Amber Bradshaw, and I will chat with you next time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, Support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com.
Table one.